Community is an in word. I'm sure you'll agree with that. People like to talk about community. If you book somewhere to stay through Airbnb, they say you haven't just bought somewhere a place to a service, you haven't just bought a service through a website, you are now part of the Airbnb community. That's a bit far-fetched, that's a bit stretching the word community, but it does illustrate our society likes to talk about community. People say they want community. And the church should be the best of communities. Now, this community takes something our society doesn't want and something our society doesn't believe in. The something our society doesn't want is rejecting individualism and cutting back some of our freedom. You can't have a community without cutting back some individual freedom. We can't just all act like individuals doing what we want. So for all our societies to talk about community, it doesn't happen that much. Because in the end, we like our individual freedom more. And the thing our society doesn't believe in is God's work in us. And the sort of community the church is to be takes that. More than human activity, it takes God's work in us. And that's what Romans 14 to 15 is about. Let's turn again to Romans 14 to 15. And if you can't remember where it is, there's page numbers on the yellow sheet. Romans chapters 14 and 15. We've been going through Romans, as most of you know, and we've been going through it taking just little bits at a time. But today we're going to jump to taking almost two chapters in one go. We might come back to them in later weeks, I'm not sure, haven't worked that out yet. But today we're doing all of Romans 14 and half of Romans 15 in one go. It's a plea for unity, a unity that's based on God's work in us, a unity that requires us to put ourselves out, not insist on our freedoms. And that is well summarised by one verse in another part of the Bible, a verse that says... Put yourself out to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, some of you might know it actually says strive to keep the unity of the Spirit. But I think that put yourself out to keep the unity of the Spirit is a good translation. How must we put ourselves out to keep the unity of the Spirit? Well, these chapters give us four ways. We're going to have to miss quite a lot out, obviously. I'm going to be rushing through giving you the message of chapters 14 to 15. I won't always point out exactly where it is in the verses. So you may find it helpful to read it all again later today and see, yes, it does really come from these verses. But I'm going to try to give you the message of these chapters. How must we put ourselves out to keep the unity of the Spirit? First, accept one another. Chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. Accept one another. Now, these chapters are a plea for unity among Christians and its basis is the church is a community that is united by being very exclusive and very inclusive. Very exclusive and very inclusive. How can it be both? Well, it's all based on God's acceptance. Verse 1 says, accept him Well, except who? Well, it gives us some details, but it gives us the broad picture at the end of verse 3. Who are we to accept? The end of verse 3 tells us the people God has accepted. 
There are differences between these people. Verse 1, some of them, their faith is weak. Some of them, their faith is strong. Verse 2, they have disagreements over some things. We'll hear later what those some things are. They disagree on. But accept because God has accepted. Exclude everyone God has not accepted. Include everyone God has accepted. Well, that throws up a big question we must address before we move on. The big obvious question is this. Whom does God accept? Who does God accept? Well, chapters 1 to 11 has been answering that. And what is the answer? The answer is no one deserves to be accepted by God. No one has a right to be accepted by God. The answer is everyone ought to be rejected by God. But God is so welcoming, so, so welcoming. He sent his son to take our rejection so we could be accepted. So who could be accepted? Oh, well, Romans also tells us that. People who admit, I don't deserve to be accepted. God would have every right to reject me and I couldn't complain he'd been wrong. People who wouldn't dream of coming to God and say, accept me because look at what I've done. But instead come to God and say, accept me because look at what Jesus has done. People who turn from sin, turn from treating God as if he didn't matter because they want God himself. Does God really accept anyone who does that? Yes, anyone, anyone. So have you done that? Have you admitted those things? Have you asked God those things? It's not complicated. It doesn't take turning up to church five times. It doesn't even take turning up to church two times. Whoever you are, it is so inclusive. You could do that now. You could admit that now. You could ask that now. And God will accept you now. It's amazing, isn't it? God will accept you. I'd love to hear from you if you if you do ask God today to accept you. Or if you think, well, I really need to know more. Well, there isn't that much more you need to know. But if you think that, I would love to hear from you and talk about it. But let's get back to how this relates to us as a church. Our acceptance of people as part of Hollywell Church must be the same as God's acceptance. Now, anyone is welcome to attend, anyone is welcome to attend these meetings at Hollywell, but you're not part of the church unless God accepts you. If our acceptance is broader than God's, or if our acceptance is narrower than God's, we act as if we are the head of just a human club, rather than Jesus is the head and it's his church. Let's think of two different examples of that. Think of a village parish church, and there it is at the heart of the village, and there's a lot of social pressure on that church. Everyone who wants to be part of this church must be accepted, because it's at the heart of the community. Regardless of whether they say they're trusting in Jesus or not, regardless of whether their life looks like they're trusting in Jesus or not. Can you imagine the pressure there must be on a village parish church? Just got to accept everyone, because... Because that's the way it's been in this community for generations. Well, that is saying the church belongs to us, not to Jesus. Then we go to the opposite end of the spectrum. We think about a cult, 
a cult which is dominated by a big personality or maybe a, a shadowy committee of people. And they say, you are only accepted if you agree with us about the details of when Jesus comes back. If you dress the way we approve of. If you answer exactly in line with us on all the questions. Well, they in a different way are saying the church belongs to us, not to Jesus. And we must not be like either of those. Our acceptance of people must be the same as God's acceptance. Not broader, not narrower. That's very hard to do. And we will often get it wrong. But we must try. Now, that doesn't mean a church can't take a stand on secondary issues. We can. But we must not exclude people on them. What sort of thing do I mean? Here's an example. We at Hollywell don't baptise babies. Now, we are out of line with most Christians, because most Christians have baptised babies, but we don't. And I think we're right. But we must accept people who disagree if we think God has accepted them and if they're happy to live at peace with us about it. If we exclude people over secondary issues or if people walk out of the church over secondary issues, both are treating the church as a human club, not as the church of Jesus with him as head. How should you put yourself out to keep the unity of the Spirit? Accept one another. Here's a second way we should. Don't pass judgment on one another. This is verses 4 to 12, still in chapter 14, verses 4 to 12. Well, the phrase is actually in verse 13. You might see it there in verse 13. Stop passing judgment on one another. But it's got a therefore in front of it because it's what came before. It's summarising what came before. Now, we need to find out more about the difficulties putting strains on unity in Rome. This letter was written to Christians in Rome. Something was straining their unity. What was it? Well, verse 2 tells us, and verse 6 tells us, it was an issue about whether to eat vegetables or meat. Doesn't that sound odd? Fancy a church falling out about whether to eat vegetables or meat. What on earth is going on? Well, you put it together with other things written in this letter, and you find it was Jewish Christians, people who were Christians but from a Jewish background, they felt they should keep Old Testament food rules, like don't eat pork, it's unclean. Non-Jewish Christians, they rightly saw, that doesn't matter anymore. We don't have to keep to those laws anymore. They were right. The Jewish Christians were wrong. But that doesn't solve the matter. You see, the non-Jewish Christians were looking down on these backward Jews. Oh, they're so backward, aren't they? They're stuck in the Old Testament. Don't they understand it's changed? And the Jewish Christians were judging the others. These dirty Gentiles, how can God be pleased with pork eaters? Oh, it's disgusting. You see, and so, it's not as simple as just one side's right and the other's wrong. They are both told, realise both of you are trying to live for the Lord. That person you're looking down on, or that person you're judging, the Lord is their master. The Lord is their judge. They'll answer to him, not you. So... Stop passing judgment on one another. Now, I don't think we have a pork problem here in this church, do we? No? And we do have some vegetarians, but I don't think we fall out over vegetarianism. I don't think that's the issue here, is it? So how is it relevant to us? 
Well, the key to getting our response right to this chapter, the key to rightly applying it is identifying our issues that fit this chapter. And those are issues where the Bible gives us freedom, freedom to differ, but some people may be troubled in their conscience about them. Now, we mustn't be too broad as if everything's a matter of conscience. Not everything is. And we mustn't be too narrow as if the Bible spells out everything and nothing is a matter of conscience. Some things are. So I'll try to help you with some examples. Let's start with the most obvious one, alcohol. Alcohol. Some people are too broad. It's, I'll do whatever my conscience is happy with. But it's not just all conscience. It is a sin to get drunk. It is a sin to overindulge whether your conscience is happy with it or not. Some are too narrow. Our Christians must not drink alcohol. Look at all the trouble it's caused. No Christian must touch alcohol. No, that's too narrow. The Bible doesn't say that. You are free to drink alcohol. Jesus made a lot of alcohol. Here's another example. What clothes to wear at church? Some people feel feel bad if they don't turn up in their Sunday best. Well, if you feel bad not turning up in your Sunday best, stick with that. Don't go against your conscience. But don't impose it on others. We have Christian freedom. But the freedom is limited. Not everything is freedom. Wearing immodest or gender-bending clothes is not Christian freedom. It's disobedience. If you don't know what I mean by that, well, ask me. That would make me nervous trying to answer that, actually. (laughs) Anyway... It's an important question, though. What TV do you watch? What films do you watch? There is some Christian freedom on this. There are things I don't feel happy watching, which I can't get up here and say it's a rule for all Christians. I'd be going beyond the Bible. But if you're watching sexual activity on TV and in films, and don't be too narrow how you define sexual activity, that's not Christian freedom. It's plain disobedience as well as stupid. Here's one that comes up repeatedly in Hollywell Church meetings, so now I'm going to be controversial and step on some toes. How children behave. Oh dear, controversial topic. What standards of behaviour do you expect from your children? There is room for disagreement, because the Bible gives us Christian freedom. But if you let your children be rude and disobey adults, that isn't Christian freedom. You as a parent are being disobedient. You need to sort it out. I'm not claiming it's easy. Right? And don't pe- uh, You're all going to watch now, aren't you? <laughs> Afterwards. But I hope you're getting the right idea. There are areas for Christian freedom, but don't push them too far because you can push them into disobedience. Now, on these sorts of issues, don't pass judgment. The people around you now... Their master and their Lord and their judge is Jesus. So leave him to be master and judge. Don't try to take his job. Now, I wonder if you remember the name Brett Kavanaugh. Do you remember that name? Yeah? He was nominated to be a judge of the US Supreme Court. And allegations were made about him, and the mob made up their minds quickly, didn't they? Two ways. One mob made up their minds, he must be guilty. And the other mob made up their minds, he must be innocent. And they made up their minds basically on party lines. But it's a job to be left to judges. It's a good thing we have judges, and some things should be left to them. 
But we can be like that mob in the church, can't we? Oh yes, we can. Jumping to conclusions about people. Seeing how they're different from us and dredging up a reason why that makes them wrong because we want to feel better than them. Quick to pronounce them guilty on something that, if we're honest, is an issue of Christian freedom. Oh yes, sometimes we do have to rebuke our fellow Christian and correct them when it's clear they're sinning against the Bible and persisting in it. But I think what we more often do is just mutter behind their backs, don't we? So when in verse 1 it says, accept him, the weak Christian, it doesn't just mean you'll let him in this building. It doesn't even just mean you'll let him into membership. It means full acceptance, without reservation, without suspicion, without a fault-finding attitude, and certainly without thinking, things would be easier in this church without him. I wish he'd go and find himself a different church. Do you ever think that? Has God accepted that person? Did God make a mistake to accept them? Well, then you accept them. How do you put yourself out to keep the unity of the Spirit? Here's the third one. Don't cause others to stumble. Now we move on to verses 13 to 23. Chapter 14, verses 13 to 23. We need to think a little bit more what was happening there in Rome amongst those Christians. Well, it seems something like this. Non-Jewish Christians were very keen on their freedom to eat pork. You can imagine them bringing their bacon sandwiches along to a church barbecue or whatever was their equivalent. And they're pushing the Jewish Christians. Don't be so Old Testament. Haven't you got your understanding of the law sorted out? Have a nice piece of pork. It's not a sin. You really need to get your understanding sorted out. And the Jewish Christians, in response, could go two ways. One was to eat the pork. Oh, this person says, I haven't broken God's law. And they're right. And this is me now commenting. That person was right. They haven't broken God's law. But they have gone against conscience. And conscience is treated in such a high way in the Bible. Verse 23. Verse 23, but the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin, which is just saying that if you do something that, strictly speaking, is correct and doesn't break God's law, but you have a bad conscience about it, you're sinning because you should take notice of your conscience. That's one way they could go. They could, they could say, they could give in to the pressure. Okay, I'll eat the pork. Another way is to feel so despised by these superior Christians with their correct teaching that they leave the church. They just feel, the Jewish Christians feel so despised by these other Christians as backward and got their understanding wrong that they think, if people are going to treat me like that, if they're going to push me around like that, I'm out of here. And they go off into the spiritual wilderness. Because remember, church is not a club, it's Christ's church. And you can't leave it without doing yourself harm. You know, in our society where we've got loads of churches around, people are so free and easy about leaving churches. But you do yourself harm. Because you treat the church like a club, not like Christ's church. And this is so serious that it says, verse 15, verse 15, 
If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. And when it says distressed, it doesn't just mean, oh, they're a bit offended. And they're a little bit upset because they don't like the smell of bacon. It's not that. It's you're pushing him into sin. Or you're pushing him out of the church. And this is not, this verse is not a comment on whether you can or can't lose your salvation. It's saying, this person who, as far as you're aware, is a brother Christ died for, your behaviour is pressuring him to go against his conscience or making him unwelcome in the church. And that could drive him away from Christ. And away from Christ is destruction forever. When it says destroy, it really does mean destroy. Now, this is not as far from us as it seems. With us, I haven't yet had a problem from anyone complaining that we have uh, sausages at the church barbecue. I'm not aware of it being an issue. But this isn't as far from us as it seems. In any group, including a church, there can be a lot of pressure to fit in. And if someone has on their conscience that they should do something that's rather different from the rest of us, we can make it very difficult for them to fit with their conscience. If a woman thinks she should wear a head covering when praying, well, she'd stand out here. If a man thinks he should wear a suit and a tie, well, there aren't many of you left here. If parents think they should home educate, or some other parents think that they shouldn't, that actually children should be sent to a school and mixed with others. Or a father thinks his son shouldn't be playing basketball out there afterwards because it's a Sunday and he shouldn't play basketball. If someone thinks it's reverent to pray in a way the rest of us think sounds quite formal and old-fashioned. It's hard to be different from the crowd. But the church should be a place where conscience is respected. And people sticking to their conscience, even if we think they're a bit odd, are admired for sticking to their conscience and not whispered about or criticised or made to feel odd. We must be definite about what we demand and require from the Bible. But we must be very open on issues of conscience. There's a bigger principle here too as well. I wonder if you've ever played that game where you have some sticks that they are like cocktail sticks and you drop them in a pile on a table and then you have to pull, take turns pulling one out without the rest moving. And it's very hard, isn't it? Because you pull one out and the rest move. And Romans 14 is telling us the church is like that jumble of sticks. We all affect each other. Our behaviour, our grumbles, our things we're pushy about, and particularly when people up sticks and leave the church, it affects others. It can harm others. It can put people off the gospel. Chapter 14 says it can drive people away and it can even destroy others. The stakes here are high. How we act in a church affects other people and we must think about that carefully. How do you put yourself out to keep the unity of the Spirit? Here's one last way. It's the most obvious way. Put others first. This is chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. Put others first. Now, this plea for unity that these chapters are about involves putting yourself out. Sometimes you'll have to not do something you're quite free to do. But you won't do it because it will harm unity. 
the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 is he's on a very similar subject. And he says, if me eating meat is going to encourage someone else to sin, I'm never going to eat meat again in my life. Well, that's a big commitment, isn't it? He doesn't say these silly people, they've got quite a hang-up. I'll bear with them for a month and hope they've, if they haven't been well taught after then, well, you know, they're a bit dim, aren't they? Now he says, I'll never eat meat again. No more bacon sandwiches, no more chicken, no more beef, no more pork, no more any meat. Paul says he's willing to do that. The standard is very high of putting yourself out for others. Whatever would motivate us to do that? Whatever would motivate such putting ourselves out? Our Saviour. That's the answer, isn't it? Our Saviour. Verse 3, chapter 15, verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Oh, he had freedom unlike any other human, but he didn't use it. He was free to please himself. He was free to stay in heaven. He was free to say, why should I go to the cross for them? And if he did say that, we couldn't complain. He was free to do it. He wouldn't be doing anything wrong. He was free to prove the mockers wrong and come down from the cross. But he gave up his freedom. He put others first. He is the motivation. And Paul's saying, I'll give up meat the rest of my life. It's a lot better than probably we're doing. But it's nothing compared with what Jesus did. Now, we're in a very divided society, aren't we? Apparently, there's this thing called Brexit that no one can agree on. Have you noticed? Yeah? I sometimes watch Question Time. Now, I thought I liked politics and liked arguing, but boy, it gets me fed up. Because everyone's arguing, and everyone's pushy, and they're not listening to each other, and they're all divided. And it's not surprising. Because the essence of sin is wanting our own way. We should not be surprised we're in a divided society because it's a society full of sinners and sinners all want their own way. But the church should not be like that because the church should be full of people not pushing for their own way but pushing for this, verse 2. Pushing for what builds others up. Have some of you been gifted with a pushy character? It's not necessarily a bad thing, but make sure you're pushy for this. What builds others up? And so verse 7 brings us back to where we started. Verse 7, accept one another. Takes us right back to the beginning. This is all about a proper accepting of one another. Why should you accept him or her? Because he's like you? No. Because she's good company? No. Because he's sorted out on Christian living? No. Because you're in agreement with her about styles of worship? No. Because he's easy to get on with? No. Here's why. Verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. You don't have to be like-minded about everything. But are you people Christ has accepted? And he did it with a purpose. To unite together people who are different. 
As I passed the school gate in the area of London I used to live in, I noticed that there, that there was a group of English mothers together, and a group of Indian mothers together, and a group of Polish mothers together, and a group of Somali mothers together. And it was interesting noticing these different groups, very much in their groups. Jesus is making something better than that. And Jesus did it so that God is praised as people see the unity he creates. Verse 7, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. It doesn't mean, well verse 8 onwards tells us, it doesn't just mean getting people singing hymns in church. It means Jesus' business was getting people together who are different. And that shows something of God's greatness that he's praised. And so it says... We are to promote the praise of God by showing that Jesus achieved something the world fails to. Jesus has brought together all sorts of people to be one in Christ. That brings praise to God and so we must put ourselves out to keep and to show that unity.